Good morning. Well, bless you, and thank you so much for the warm uh, greeting that you've given Sandy and I as we've uh, joined with you this morning. It's a real privilege to be with you. And um, there's much that is on my heart and that I would like to share with you, but we'll, we'll try to work within that 35-minute uh, range. And I want you to know as well that we're very grateful for this church. We're very grateful for VG and for others who have been very, very helpful and encouraging to us as Voice of the Martyrs in Canada and through our work around the world. And thank you for that. Um, you know, uh, we come from, maybe some of us come from different cultures, but we are one in Christ. And I sense that oneness, and Sandy and I both sense that oneness when we came through the door this morning. This happens to us time and time again, and I'm sure it happens to you all the time. But we are indeed one in Christ, and it really is that principle that I want to talk to you about this morning and ask you to consider, as we go through these remarks, to consider one very important question, and that is, are we the persecuted church? Are we the persecuted church? I want you to consider that, and I want you to consider a second question, which actually precedes that question and is probably more haunting and more important, and that is, am I prepared to die for my faith? And these are questions that, and particularly that question, that um, we would never think to ask ourselves, and why would we? We live in Canada. We are safe. We are comfortable. Now, that isn't necessarily applying to 100% of us. Of course, I realize. But these are questions that I'd like to have us consider this morning because they're fundamental, I believe, to first of all, understanding our role as the Christian church in relation to the persecuted church around the world, but also in understanding how we can allow God to speak to our heart and by the power of his Holy Spirit to bring about a transformation in our church. A needed transformation. A refocusing. An understanding that we don't necessarily live in the real world. That the real world, that is the two-thirds of it that we don't see as we sit in a, in a country like Canada. The real world is a very different place. And there are many, many people, believers like you and I, who are indeed paying the ultimate price simply because they believe and they profess in their belief in Jesus Christ. And you and I don't take any risks, really, for expressing ourselves in our faith. I'm standing up here this morning quite freely of my own free will, by your invitation. We're all coming together in the name of Jesus. We're not hiding anything. There's nobody in the closet. There's nothing being recorded. We don't have spies here who are taking note and later checking out who we are and so on and so on and so on. And I'm just touching the surface of what the rest of the world looks like to a lot of people. But we'll talk about that. But let's also, as we consider these remarks, remember that we are not here preaching victimology. That's a word I made up. We're not here preaching victimology. I like to say we're preaching victorology. And you understand the difference. That's a big difference. We're not victims. We're children of God because of Jesus, because we abide in him. He already owns the victory. He's given it to us freely. We can walk in that. We can love one another in the truth. 
We can love others in the truth, even, even those who hate us and would do harm against us. And in fact, that's what Jesus asked us to do. So we're going to consider some of these truths in the next 30 minutes. But, you know, speaking of, of culture, the, the, there's a dear man that I met as I was sitting beside him. He asked me, this gentleman, asked me if I'd ever been to India. Now, you would probably expect the answer to that question to be no. You know, I'm a kid who was born in Toronto. I'm raised here. Well, in fact, I have been to India. I was there in 1971. 1971, I spent a year working with Youth for Christ organization, and I toured around the entire world leading a musical group that was doing musical ministry to people all over the world. And the, the place where we concentrated most of our time was in India, and we actually were there for three months, and we visited 27 different cities from the north to the south of India, each day doing sometimes up to three or four concerts to sometimes as many as, I remember a concert we did in Bangalore for 4,000 young people who wanted to hear about Jesus. They wanted to hear North American music, but they wanted to hear about Jesus because that's, that's what we were singing about. And they flocked up to the stage afterwards. Some of them were interested in buying our blue jeans because that was a pretty cool thing. But they wanted to talk about Jesus. Isn't it amazing how the story of Jesus is so universal? How it applies to so many people? And how because it is such powerful truth, it is also so intimidating to those who hate Jesus. Or at least to those who have been overcome by hate. They themselves, were they to admit it, would probably have to say, they are intrigued, maybe even they are in love with Jesus. Wow, the, the, there are so many dynamics at play in this subject of persecution. First of all, we have to understand that we do not, in fact, exist in the real world, as I call it. That's important, but it's also mostly important to help us understand what is our role in relation to the persecuted church. Now let me just take out my trusty glasses. <clears throat> I hope you'll excuse me if I clear my throat once in a while. I've got a bit of allergy. Romans chapter 8, verse 17 and 18. You'll forgive me if I use the King James Version. I'm not sure what your favorite version is. Romans chapter 8, verse 17 and 18. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with them, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Amen. You know, there's a lot of statistical information that we hear these days about the persecuted church, about the things that are going on around the world in terms of, of terrorism, much of it against Christians. You know that, uh, that the word ISIS is a word that is in our common language now. And yet, do you also recognize that it's only been slightly more than a year that that name was even pronounced in the media? 
And in, the, in that year, there has been traumatic events happening around the world, not just by that group calling themselves ISIS or ISIL or Boko Haram. Or These are names that have come into our vernacular, which even, as I say, even a year or two years ago, we would not even have understood. Now, back in November 19, of, of last year, November 25th, myself and our chairman from Voice of the Martyrs had the opportunity to pay a visit to our friends in Ottawa. And what I mean by that is we were invited to come and present as witnesses to the Foreign Affairs Committee of Canada. And the opportunity that was ours was to express to the Foreign Affairs Committee a truth that we believed and we could back up with statistical information that of all the persecution happening in the world today, approximately 85% of it is against Christians. Now, the, the Foreign Affairs Committee, as you might expect, is not made up entirely of Christian people. In fact, there's, you know, I would say there's several, and I'm not judging their hearts, only God knows that, of course. But they're, they're, in terms of professing Christians, I know of two or three of that committee who would fit into that category. And the others are people who, frankly, when I offer that kind of a statistic, they would push back and they would say, no, that can't be true. There's persecution against Muslims, there's persecution against all sorts of, all sorts of groups, Buddhists, so on and so forth. And while I wouldn't deny that, of course there is. There's, there's persecution against people all over the world for all kinds of reasons. But the Pew, the Pew Research Group out of Washington, which we rely on for a lot of our statistical information, not all of it, but for a lot of it, which relates to the, the world stage, that research group in 19, I'm sorry, in 2010, determined that of all the persecution happening in the world, 85% of it was aimed at Christians. The Foreign Affairs Committee found it very, very hard to accept that. So I, anticipating that that would be the case, Ahead of time, we had uh, agreed to set up television sets around the room. Now, the committee sits in a kind of a horseshoe-shaped, it's a little bit like a very formal boardroom or courtroom. And uh, we had placed these television screens all the way around the room so that everybody sitting was able to see the screen. At first, they didn't have a clue what they were for. And when the pushback came on the statistic, I said, well, then I'd like to introduce you to somebody. And live by teleconference, we had prearranged for one of the girls, the 280 girls that were kidnapped by the Boko Haram in Nigeria at the school called Chibok, which is a Christian school in Nigeria. We had arranged for one of those girls who had escaped off the back of the truck as they were pulling away from the school and had then linked up with a Christian human rights lawyer who was able to bring her to America and who has made, made it possible that today she's actually studying in a college on a full scholarship and, and regaining her life, along with five or six others who also escaped. We introduced her live to the Foreign Affairs Committee and asked her to tell her story so that it wasn't our words, it was, it was her words. She first told the story of the Boko Haram attacking the school. It was very touching, she said, they were interrogating all of the students. They were coming in gradually into the school. She said, I ran back into the school. I got out my cell phone. I called my daddy. And I said, Daddy, they're here. They're interrogating our students. 
should I run? What should I do? And, and her father said, don't run, dear. They'll shoot you in the back. It's too late. What you need to do is, is just comply with whatever they say, and I'll find a way to get to you. This was, can you imagine how her father felt at that moment, having received that phone call and hearing her beautiful daughter's voice and knowing that she was about to be put into the hands of terrorists who had unimaginable things in mind in terms of how they were going to treat her and what they were going to do. And this was a father who kept his calm and who gave his daughter exactly the right advice, otherwise she would have been dead. And she survived because when she got on the truck, she and three or four of her friends who were at the back of the truck as it was driving away from Tribok were able to jump off and hide in the bushes and then ultimately find their way back to the village. And then, as I said, they found their way back to America. When she told that story to the Foreign Affairs Committee, she was very clear about one thing. The Boko Haram were there to capture and kidnap Christians and anyone else who got in their way and who didn't comply. And she made it very clear that this was a Christian school. The, the terrorists were deliberately asking point out the Christians to us. We want to know who they are. She told that story, and then she told her personal testimony of her faith in Jesus Christ. You could have heard a pin drop in the room. Everyone was silenced. There was nothing they could say. Suddenly, the statistic that I had offered, which came from our research group, which said that 85% of all of that persecution was against Christians, was defensible. I'm not saying that everybody suddenly agreed, but they respected the information. And they more than that respected this young 18-year-old beautiful girl who gave this testimony. Thank God that today she and some of her friends have survived. But even today we know that at least 250 of those girls have been horribly mishandled and for the most part sold off in marriage slavery. So that's part, uh, that's a glimpse into what's really happening in the world, but also how the world perceives it. And this is very, very important because we have to ask ourselves this fundamental question. Are we the persecuted church or are we, are we standing by and, and holding out our hand to support them and love them? But to us, is it something that is over there and that we have to pray for and be concerned about? Yes, but is it also something that we own, that we are part of, and if so, why? Well, let's consider that question. Statistics. There's lots of statistics. You guys, if you're tuned in at all to secular media, you know that we as, as Christian ministries, we don't even need to tell the story uh, in terms of what's really happening in the world because secular media has picked up on it. And they're telling the story. Now, they are certainly coloring the story, and they're grabbing highlights, and they're sensationalizing the story. But at the end of the day, to be honest, they're sensationalizing it, but it's pretty accurate what the, what the international media is, is conveying. And worse, in Iraq, there were a million Christians in 2003. Today, there's maybe... A couple hundred thousand. That's in Iraq. 
Now you know you've heard of the town of Mosul, which was a town that was very much occupied by a lot of Christian people in Iraq. And, I, and ISIS came and basically drove those people out of that town. They completely disentitled them and disenfranchised them in terms of anything that they owned and had. And they drove them out of their homes. And they became refugee status, displaced peoples. You've maybe heard the term internally displaced peoples. And these are people who have, are still within the political territory or the country of their birth or of their residency, but they have been put out of their homes by terrorists because, to a large extent, they are Christians. You remember recently in the news there was that image of the Nazarene symbol that was being painted on doorstops by the, by the Boko Haram and by ISIL and, Is, and ISIS? And how ironic, how powerful was the metaphor when you thought about it. I wrote about it in one of our articles that they actually would take the symbol which means Jesus, the Nazarene, the end, and paint that on doorposts with red paint, metaphorically symbolizing the 10th plague of Egypt that God brought down upon Pharaoh. And also proclaiming beautifully, I thought, the name of Jesus as being the most powerful thing, something that they desperately wanted to wipe out, and, yet, and which they themselves were portraying on these doorposts. These are things which come up in the media, which, which speak volumes when you think about it. That's the, world, that's the kind of world we live in. Kurdistan is now home to 300,000 Iraqis. There's 220,000 Syrian refugees. In Mosul, Christians once numbered tens of thousands, and now there are just a handful. We say 25 families. Mosul is desolate of Christians, and yet it was, and I believe still is and will, be, will return to, a place where there was Christianity, where Christianity abounded. Mosul, if you, if you know geography, sits at the mouth of the Tigris and Euphrates, and oh, sorry, the Tigris River. And directly across from Mosul is the old, ancient, biblical town of Nineveh. You remember the story? It's interesting. It's interesting how these things all link together. How God uses these things metaphorically to remind us that he's still sovereign, he's still in control. The Pew Research Group in 2012 determined that Christians were being harassed in 139 countries around the world. Turkey hosts 1 million displaced Syrians, 300,000 of which are in state-run camps. One of the things we do as a Christian ministry, and it's sadly a we need to do so much more. But in these state-run camps, these refugee camps that are in Syria and other places where there are now millions of displaced peoples, if you add them all up around the world, one of the things we do is we, we give out packages, support packages, care packages, whatever you, you want to call it, of food and clothing and blankets and Bibles and what, whatever we can give. That's one of the 
projects that Voice of the Martyrs undertakes. But there is such a wave of need. There are so many people that are in need now that it's difficult for us to even imagine how we're going to make a difference. But God encourages us every day to go one more step, one more step, to keep going, to keep going. And he will determine how he is going to be glorified. He asks us to submit ourselves. It's not for our glory, it's for his. We come alongside those who are persecuted. Why? Because we love them, because we have Jesus in us, and he loves them. And he loves them through us, and directly, and in every way conceivable. 2.9 Syrian refugees, 860,000 of which are in state-run camps. That's the total number. I could go on. Statistics are really important. They're also frightening. They're also sometimes disheartening. What we need to know and understand is that God owns these situations. He is sovereign in all of these matters. He loves these children. They will be protected, particularly those who are standing up for him who have been called and equipped to be able to be tortured, if necessary, even killed for the sake of Christ. And yet in the, in the presence of him, uh, of that, they are able to experience a deep inner joy that is hard for any of us to even comprehend. One of the things about persecution. One of the things about a person staring down the barrel of a gun and being asked to renounce their faith in Christ. And this happens every hour of every day. In fact, in the time that we're taking this morning to sit here, there likely will be several people around the world who are actually killed for Christ. And I don't mean to in any way diminish the power of that reality down to a little statistic. But somehow we got to get our heads around the fact that this is actually happening. And, you know, we approach this in our ministry from two directions. We refer to this as being a, a bi-directional ministry. And by that I mean we do, we do two things, and we believe that both are very, very important. One is that we reach out to the persecuted church Because we believe we are one with them, we join with them and we bring them encouragement and all of the practical relief things that you would imagine are required. Whether that's letters in prison, advocacy, whether it's food, whether it's clothes, whether it's safe housing, uh, whatever it is, these are the kinds of things that we try to deliver through our various missions projects around the world. We have partners who work with us. We have agents who are our, what we call our boots on the ground, uh, who operate in stealth mode. We uh, are always concerned about protecting the identity of the people that we're working with because they are basically being hunted in some cases. If a person, if a family, for instance, has been leading an underground church, which is a very common thing in various parts of the world where there is persecution, and an under, the term underground church means, as you would expect, uh, something that is hidden, something that is, that is very private. It's not a church building like this. There's no freedom 
to worship as we are here this morning. So it's all underground, as I say. But often what happens is the, the pastors, the patriarchs, the leaders of those ministry families that are working underground are taken out. They're targeted and they're killed. This is not just torture. This is just kill them. When that, when that happens, the family is destitute because everything that they had or had access to is gone. They can't buy food. They can't do business. They can't buy clothes. Their home is not safe anymore. They are a Christian family. Now, that gives us a great opportunity, all of us, to come alongside those people and to bring them safe housing and all those things that they need that are practical. So one side of our ministry is practical relief, encouragement, uh, connectedness to the body of Christ, reaching out and taking hold and joining with those who are persecuted. Now, the other side, and it's, it's equally important that we deliver on this promise, because I believe it's most honoring to God and most honoring to the people that we are serving who are in peril for Christ, and that is that we are taking their testimony, their witness, their faith, and we want to bring it and infuse it into the heart of the Canadian church. We're a Canadian charitable, charitable organization, so our focus in Canada domestically is the Canadian church. That's you, that's me, that's all of us who are believers in Canada. We want to infuse the story of the persecuted into the, directly into the heart of the Canadian church because we believe that if the Canadian church can finally ask itself this one fundamental question, am I prepared to die for my faith? If it can finally ask itself that question, then perhaps it can come to a very, very important conclusion, an answer. And the answer is hard to comprehend. Because when we talk about staring down the barrel of a gun or giving our lives for Christ, this is not something that we as Canadians have even had to contemplate. We may have to contemplate it because we have family in other parts of the world who are experiencing some of these things. And that brings it home for us. But we ourselves, in our daily lives here in Canada, don't have to consider that question. But if we did, if we once and for all could ask and answer that question for ourselves, we believe that it would begin to bring about a transformation, a wake-up call, something that is vitally important for the Canadian church to be able to be unified with the full body of Christ around the world and to be most effective in the ministry that we are doing. Why is that? Well, I think it's because this message, the message which is people are, in fact, dying for their faith every hour of every day. This message is universally so important and so fundamental to the Christian faith and so wrapped up in the theology that Jesus taught us. That if we, if we confront the question, if we finally ask and answer that question for ourselves, not only will that transformation start to take place, but in that, we will let go of a whole lot of other things that really, comparatively, don't matter. Think of all the issues that our Christian church across Canada has. 
Think of the lack of unity that is there in so many cases. Now it's there because Jesus paid the ultimate price that we would be one in him. And whether we reject that or whether we don't pay enough heed to that or whether we don't fully understand what that means or we've enculturated ourselves in our individual churches to the extent that we are blocking that, out, that reality out or whatever the reason, we need to come back to the simple basic truth that Jesus said to his disciples and he's saying to every one of us this morning, the world hates me, they're going to hate you. He didn't say, hey, some of you are going to have a rough time. I'm sorry, i got to tell you that, but some of you are going to have a tough time. He didn't say it. He was talking about every Christian. The theology of Jesus as it, as it is written and as he told it to his disciples and to us is that we will suffer persecution. Now, it'll take on different shapes and forms. I don't believe we're intended to throw ourselves under the bus. I don't believe for a minute that we should cause or put ourselves in harm's way in such a way that, that we would cause persecution to happen against us. Of course not. In fact, God's given us the privilege of being those who come alongside the persecuted and care for them in the way that I've been describing. He's given us that privilege. He has not called us or privileged us and called us to be persecuted in a physical way. That's an honor that is bestowed upon many around the world, but not us. We're called to come alongside those who are being persecuted. And it may be that someday we ourselves will face that kind of persecution. It may be. I, I can't, we can't possibly know that. And so there is this bi-directional ministry, which, as I say, takes hold of the persecuted community and at the same time brings its story and its truth and message directly and infusing it into the heart of the Canadian church. And hopefully if that happens, there'll be a transformation and there'll be many things that will just fall away that we thought were issues, that we once thought were really vitally important. And I'm not going to start listing those things because I don't think that that's warranted. But you can ask yourself that question. The pursuit of religious freedom in the world is an interesting subject these days. And in fact, you may know that just as the U.S. in 1998 established a, uh, an office of religious freedom, uh, we too here in Canada in the last few years have established an office of religious freedom. Dr. Andrew Bennett is the chairman of that office. I've had two private meetings with him and we've spoken about religious freedom around the world. Voice of the Martyrs engages and defends religious freedom. We support the office of religious freedom in Ottawa. But there are some fundamental challenges that we all need to understand when we talk about religious freedom. There are many countries around the world that purport to protecting and embracing religious freedom. Canada is one of them, but there are many, many that you would think, actually, it's questionable whether they actually do. Well, the truth is, if you look at the way most people in the world today are interpreting religious freedom, there's a basic fundamental problem, and that is that as evangelical Christians, we believe that our religious freedom is directly tied 
to our freedom to choose the faith that we want to believe and to express that faith through our worship and through our, through our telling of that testimony to other people to express it in any way that we deem fit. Well, the rest of the world doesn't want that kind of interference so they want a sort of a non-interference policy on religious freedom. They want you to believe what you believe, but do it in the corner and not to follow the great commission of Jesus, which was to go into the world and preach the gospel. This creates uh, an interesting challenge for us because we typically, of, of being Canadian, we're always walking on these politically correct eggshells and you never know what to say, what not to say. And, you know, truth is, you know, I've got great respect for people's freedoms. But the interesting thing about the Human Rights Charter that was formed in 1984 and which speaks about religious freedom, it gives rise to the notion of religious freedom. But the Human Rights Charter was created during the time of Pierre Trudeau's government back in 84. And it was a time when the kinds of issues that we were grappling with under human rights were quite different from what they are today. And again, without me listing anything in particular, you can just think in your mind of some of the issues that we're dealing with today that our children or our grandchildren are going to be dealing with under the subject heading of human rights. Now here's the thing that the world seems to forget and which then applies to this question of, of religious freedom. And that is that I believe, and I think it's pretty clear, that you can't have human rights without there first being a rights giver. Let me repeat that. You can't have human rights without there first being a rights giver. And that would be one who is unchangeable. Who, who is, in fact, righteous. Well, that's how we define God. You can't have human rights without there being a God who has, in fact, created us and by, do, do, by so doing has, has woven into the DNA of his creation his laws, but all, also all of the human rights, the, the things which are inalienable and unchangeable. This is something else that the world forgets. And this is a very important factor when we consider how we are going to advocate for religious freedom around the world. But it's a very, it's a very uh, difficult discussion to have. Now here's a very important principle in, in religious freedom and in the world of persecution. And it's something we have to always keep in mind and always act by. And that is Ephesians 6 verse 12. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. You know, we've talked about this a lot. I'm sure you have considered this, but this is a very, very important principle when we consider the whole area of persecution. Because we need to understand that it's not flesh and blood, that we are fighting against principalities and powers, and the only weapons which will gain any ground or have any kind of usefulness are spiritual weapons. They are God's weapons. We arm ourselves with the breastplate of truth and righteousness. God's weapons. That'll make a difference. What's the most powerful 
gift that Paul spoke of. He said, the most powerful is love. And that's where it gets a little bit almost mystical as we come to understand what happens when someone is martyred. Because they are asked to renounce their faith in Christ while staring down the barrel of a gun. Something that I couldn't do. Something that I don't think any of us in this room could do unless we have superhuman capabilities. And that's the point. The only way that anyone could suffer that, could actually surrender their lives for Jesus. And that's happening every hour of every day. The only way that that could happen is supernaturally. It has to be a God thing. The Holy Spirit enters into that situation, that circumstance, just before the beheading, just as the trigger is going to be pulled on the gun. I'm sorry if this topic is hard for us to grasp. Some of these concepts are very difficult, but we need to understand this is the world we're living in. And he has called us to come alongside those who are suffering. But he himself is ahead of us. He's there already. He's there with his children who are, who are either have paid or are paying the ultimate price for following him. So when that trigger is pulled, when, when that person says, I will not renounce Jesus, which, by the way, is what mostly happens in those situations, they die. And then they're with Jesus. And in the process of all of that happening, they do experience that deep inner joy that we talk about. We talk about it in the context of our own faith. It's something that is available to us for those of us who, in whom abides the Holy Spirit. There is that deep inner unexplainable joy. It's his and it's ours. So I got thinking, I wonder if there are the roots of persecution in Scripture. What, what is the basis of persecution? Where did, it, where did it really begin? And you'd be surprised, you may have already realized this, but you'd be surprised to know that it actually takes us back to 1 John chapter 3, verse 11 to 15. And it says this, For this is the message that ye heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil, and his brother's righteous. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. We know that we have passed from death unto life, because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. The story of Cain and Abel takes us right back to the beginning of humankind. And what's interesting about this story is that it says that Cain, the wicked one, who served the wicked one, slew his brother because his own works were evil and his brothers were righteous doesn't say Cain had a bad day. You know, he was kind of feeling out of sorts or he was disturbed about the meal that he had just had or 
he didn't like the weather, you know, or he was really output by some of the people around him. It doesn't say that at all. It says that he killed his brother Abel because Abel was righteous. So here we have good and evil. Right at the outset, we have murder being committed, death being committed, torture being committed because we have evil attacking righteousness. It's precisely what we're dealing with today in today's world of persecution. So we come to the fundamental question, are we the, are we the persecuted church? And um, there are a couple of scriptures that I'll give you. Hebrews 13.3, we use this one quite a bit. Remember them that are in bonds as bound with them, and them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. We are one with them. And then Romans 12, verse 5. So we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. So to um, answer the fundamental question, are we the persecuted church? We first have to come to grips, really come to grips, with this promise that in Christ we are one. It's what we experience as we walk through the doors here this morning. It's what we're experiencing right now as we consider all of these things. It's what we consider when we reach out to the persecuted church. We're not just reaching out to somebody who is over there. We are actually going and embracing them, whether that's spiritually or through our writing, through our prayer. We are joining with them because we are one with them and we believe these passages and we believe the principle of oneness which the Holy Spirit brings us and the ability that we all have together to abide in Christ. So if that's true, and it is, then we, in fact, are the persecuted church because we are inseparable from those who are being persecuted. We are inextricably linked through Jesus and by the Holy Spirit to each one who is following him around the world. We're not physically together and we're not always in communication, but we never, ever forget that we are one with them. And the most effective way that we can reach out to them as a, as a body that is being persecuted is by keeping that in mind. So if that is true, and it is, um, I'd like to leave you with this little video clip, which is my way of introducing you to a sister that you probably didn't realize you had. And it's a beautiful story of, of conversion in a setting of Iran where today there are more Muslim uh, 